Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. I've got the brilliant journalist and author Ed Caesar on the podcast. That is a name for someone writing a history book, isn't it? Ed Caesar. He came, he saw, and he conquered this particular publishing project. He joins me on the podcast to talk about the almost forgotten story of Britain's most mysterious mountain legend, Morris Wilson, World War I veteran, an outsider who attempted to climb Everest alone. I mean, the story is completely ridiculous. He actually attempted to crash an aircraft into the lower slopes of Everest and begin his climb that way. Complete, completely remarkable. Ed Caesar has rescued this story, really, from complete obscurity. It's the subject of his new book, The Moth of the Mountain, and it was a wonderful opportunity to get this fantastic writer on the podcast to talk about an extraordinary story. Ed's a writer for The New Yorker. He's won several very prestigious awards, and it's a great pleasure to have him here on the podcast. If you want to watch documentaries to go along with your audio pleasure, you can do so. We've just released the documentary In Search of My Father, which is a beautiful story of a man now in his 80th year whose father was killed eight months before he was born. I take him to a museum in the Midlands of England and unite him with, a, with an aircraft in which his father may have flown. It's very, very special. That's all available at History Hit TV. We've also got a documentary on the centenary of the burial of the unknown soldier in Westminster Abbey. The unknown soldier was buried this week, 100 years ago. So lots going on at History Hit TV. Please go and check it out. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free and then your second month for just one pound, euro or dollar. So if you're listening in England or you are in parts of the US, other parts of Europe where you are locked down, you can drink your fill of all the wonderful history documentaries on History Hit TV. In the meantime, everybody, here is Ed Caesar. Enjoy. Ed, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. You've found another one of your amazing stories. Where do you find your stories? I find my stories in a variety of places, but I still believe in reading the newspaper every day. There is a brilliant serendipity about the way that newspapers are organised. They're very good technology. So like, I come across stuff that I wouldn't know about otherwise. I'll be reading about something else. A spark will fly off this wheel and you will then find yourself thinking more about that little detail than you do about the story you've been reading. So that's broadly speaking how things go for me. Just read papers, read books, and then all the juices start flowing. I find it's very difficult to have good ideas that no one else is having if you're just reading the internet. Maybe it's because I was born in 1980, so maybe my brain hasn't been totally rewired by phones and the internet. And obviously I read, you know, I read stuff online all the time, but I find that a lot of my best ideas come when I'm reading an actual physical book. 
because you're not distracted, you're more concentrating, maybe you think the answer isn't immediately linkable. <laughs> so you, you make better connections, I think. Yeah, funny enough, there's a podcast we've got out at the moment about Toussaint Louverture in the Haitian Rebellion, and it starts, first paragraph, there's a throwaway mention to a formerly enslaved African on the slave plantations of the Indian Ocean, and she was a princess, and she led this kind of campaign against the French colonial overlords in the Indian Ocean, on one of the islands in the Indian Ocean. I'm like, hold up, buddy, that feels to me like it needs a book. Yeah, there's the story, dude. Anyway, so same thing. I was reading that and it just blew my mind. So having discussed where you get your stories, tell us about this recent one. And, and is there something about being a Brit, Everest, these kind of mad attempts to take on the Himalayas? We've all kind of grown up with those stories, haven't we, here in the UK? Yeah, I think they're quite a big part of our culture. I think George Mallory is maybe like the quintessential Englishman in a lot of ways. You know, a poet, an adventurer, someone who sort of strove for these noble ideals and in fact what well, i read about morris wilson the subject of the moth and the mountain when i was reading a book called into the silence by wade davis which is an absolutely astonishingly good book if anyone is looking for a history of the early english attempts to climb everest and he mentions wilson in passing as another one of these war veterans who tried his hand at climbing everest and that's when i first heard about it but that would have been in 2011 when I first read about that. And so the story has lingered in my mind for a long time before I started actually doing the proper research. The thing that comes back to me about Wilson is that he's not actually a type. So most of the people who tried to climb Everest in the 20s were Oxford or Cambridge, generally Eton, you know, Balliol, you know, that kind of direction. That was the highly born or the highly educated. And that was the type of person who was in the Royal Geographical Society or the Alpine Club. And Morris Wilson is the son of a mill owner from Bradford. So he's aspirant, middle class. He was a temporary gentleman in the First World War, which meant that he, he entered as a soldier and then was given a commission when so many subalterns were killed on the front line in the first couple of years that they needed to swell the ranks of second lieutenants and became a temporary gentleman. That's roughly where he sits class-wise. He's coming from a very different spot and the British authorities did not want him to undertake this journey. And he thinks that a lot of it is to do with class. He thinks it's okay if you're the Marquis of Clydesdale, you can go and fly a plane to Everest. But if you're Morris Wilson, son of Mark Wilson, mill owner from Holmtop Mill in Bradford, you know, you're not welcome in this particular club of adventurers. He may have been misplaced on that count, actually. But that's how he feels. He has, a, he has a huge chip on his shoulder. What do we know about his wartime experience? I mean, every time I go back and look at these war veterans now, I start thinking about trauma that they've suffered, the things that their wartime experience made them do after the war. Had he had a quote-unquote good war, had it been a, a traumatic war? He had an outstanding war, but it was a short one. So he first went to France at the end of 1917. So he was joining his battalion, the 1st 5th West Yorkshire's, at just at the end of the Battle of Passchendaele, then spots in the front line with men from you know, nearby West Yorkshire battalions and didn't actually see any real action until the day on which he won his military cross, which was this astonishing day on the 25th of April in 1918, when he held his post in advance of rapidly retreating front line as machine guns took out positions to his right and his left. And out of, out of his battalion, 500 odd people were killed, 150 were taken prisoner the roll call the next day there were 72 men in the first fifth left and you know it's astonishing that he survived 
and astonishing that he was able to do so when he was in such an exposed spot. And I don't think he ever got over how lucky he'd been. <laughs> it's a strange thing to survive something like that. Um, he later got shot again in quite a lucky way. You know, he got shot across the back and the left arm just near Hellfire Corner in Ypres in July of 1918. And again, a bullet goes one way or goes an inch the other way and you're not coming home. Instead, he just has a slightly lame left arm for the rest of his life. So I think the really instructive things that I read about the post-war experience were actually not from Wilson himself, but were from contemporaries. You know, people like J.B. Priestley, who grew up near him and fought in the West Yorkshires, wrote amazing, vivid descriptions of going back to a city and to a place that they didn't understand anymore. Um, Herbert Reed, who became a brilliant critic, an art critic, who'd fought in the Spring Offensive, and he talks about this dark screen of horror and violation that you can't penetrate. The people who have seen action on the front line and the people who haven't. And it's not to do with, I guess, you know, you can medicalize it and say a lot of these men were suffering from PTSD, but you could also just say that it's a normal response to seeing something horrific and experiencing something horrific that someone that most people will never see. It's a normal response to feel that alienation from normal people because how could they possibly understand? So I think, you know, the, uh, a lot of the early Everest project in the 1920s was born out of wanting something noble and pure to strive for, which, that, which those Mallory certainly felt that Everest was. And Wilson's comes out of a similar impulse, that Everest could redeem him in some way. And his plan for climbing it was rather extraordinary. Tell us what it was. He was going to fly his gypsy moth biplane by, in stages. So you couldn't fly all the way to Everest. So you had to fly in stages through Europe, through North Africa, Middle East, Trucial States, around Persia and into India. Then finally he was going to get to Purnia in northern India. He was going to fly across Nepal and he was going to crash land his gypsy moth biplane on one of the plateaus surrounding Everest. At which point he was going to get out of his biplane and then walk to the top of the mountain. He, was, he had all his climbing equipment, his whimper tents, his oxygen, his windproof clothing. So he was gonna climb alone for the final part. It's an, extra, it's an extraordinary idea. And he does actually get a huge part of the journey done. He, he flies 5,000 miles as a very inexpert and new flyer. I mean, he's got about you know, 40 hours of experience in an airplane at this point. You know, he doubles it in the first week that he's on his journey. He is a terrible ham-fisted flyer who just about makes it to India. But at that point, the uh, British authorities in India impound his plane. So he has to find a different way to get to the mountain. And he gets into an extraordinary situation of disguising himself as a Tibetan priest to cross illegally into Tibet. And then he walks to the foot of the mountain where he starts his attempts. Oh, so he goes up from the... Tibetan side. Yeah. He walks from Darjeeling up through Sikkim, over the border into Tibet, and then the same way that the, all the expeditions of the 1920s did, they approach it from the Rongbuk Monastery, Tibetan side. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. 
This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. And how does it go for him? Well, he has never climbed anything more challenging than a flight of stairs. He's done some training in Snowdonia. He did a bit of, um, I think he might have climbed the old man of Coniston. You know, he's done some hill walking, essentially. He's, and he's very fit. Um, and he has no idea how to climb mountains. And so when Wilson attempts to do it the first time around, he's got some porters who have helped him walk the 300 miles from Darjeeling to the mountain, but he tries he tries to climb it on his own and he doesn't get to the old British camp three. He has to turn around because he's so exhausted and he can't find his way and he doesn't have any crampons and so on. And eventually, half dead, he makes it back to Rongbuk and and persuades a couple of his, his uh, bootier porters to come with him again. And this time he makes it to the North Coal without giving too much away, he does not back down from the challenge that he is unfit to meet at the North Coal. So it's the first piece of climbing that's really technical uh, on Everest from the north side, and he has no way to do it. But he does not back down from it. And before him, had people made it to the North Coal? So before him, Mallory and Irvin, some people think they actually made it to the summit of Everest. So above the North Coal, that's the old Camp 4, and then they made two more high camps the old British expeditions on the mountain. In 1924, Irvin and Mallory were seen having a go for the very top. And there's this disputed sighting by Noel Adele. Did they make it over the second step or not? And the feeling is that if they made it over the second step, then they might have made it to Everest. In any event, Mallory and Irving did not survive. They died either 
on the way up or on the way down. Most likely they didn't get to the summit, but the jury's out. But they got very, very high. And in fact, even the year before there had been an expedition in 1933, the year before Wilson tried, in which Frank Smythe got within touching distance of the summit before becoming so delirious he tried to share his biscuits with an imaginary companion and then just about making it down. So the British teams had got really, really close. And it's kind of astonishing to think of how close they got or maybe actually did it in the 20s that it took until 1953 for it actually to be climbed. Why do you think we find these stories of Everest so fascinating? Is it part of our imperial nostalgia? Like, what is it that we learn by looking at these expeditions? There's an obvious narrative to a mountain. You know, you either make make it to the top or you don't. And that is, you know, we sublimate a lot of other challenges into those experiences. You know, mountaineering was a very new idea in the 1920s and 30s. You know, it only really existed as a sport since about 1860 when people started trying to bag peaks in the Alps, Grindelwald and all those places. It really hadn't existed for very long. And this idea was that you just had to conquer, you know, the idea was you bagged these peaks and eventually there's only, you know, one or two left. And the big one is Everest. There was something about the British attempt on Everest. They felt that, you know, the world's greatest seafaring nation had been beaten to both poles by other nations. And they, they viewed Everest as the third pole. And they felt that it was a matter of some kind of national pride that they not be beaten to the top of Everest. As a modern reader, I think the really interesting thing is how committed these people were to this quite abstract idea. I mean, the mountain does not care if you climb it or not. People have lived near Everest for hundreds and thousands of years and have never once thought to themselves, I must climb to the very top of that enormous mountain. This is a peculiarly British, and actually I would say a Victorian and Edwardian obsession that you know, has become an accepted sport now. But it is quite a weird idea that in order to achieve something, you have to get to the very the very top of it. I also wondered if there was a spirit for about 150 years there where the world was there to be sort of tamed and conquered. And, you know, from the moment we started burning coal and draining and canalising rivers, it just looked like this was one giant playground that we needed to sort of get on top of. And we're only now coming to terms with the fact that we may have destroyed a livable climate in doing that. But I, I wonder if climb, the Victorians climbing mountains was part of that drive to blast and curb and change the very earth beneath our feet. You know, there's this subjugation element of it. I also think there, there is something that runs alongside this, which is about a more modern sense of the self, which is something that I dig into a little bit in the book, because Shackleton is really interesting on this. You know, he talks about reaching the end of his incredible series of hardships when endurance, that mission goes wrong. And he talks about reaching the naked soul of men. These expeditions were always couched in sort of geographical or exploratory terms. They always had a kind of scientific drive to them. But for the people who were doing them, that wasn't why Mallory wanted to climb Everest. He wanted to reach some deep and impenetrable part of his Self. And I think this idea, you know, you see people now do triathlons or they want to, you know, swim across the channel or whatever it is. This, you know, it has taken the place of religion for a lot of people, these kind of huge challenges. And you see, I mean, now maybe more people do stuff that's like this than they've ever done stuff that's like that. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And then 
stripping away the kind of facade of civility and fashion and all those other things because that's when i go when i do sailing or climbing you always people say what i love about it is you really you really get to know yourself on the mountain and it presumably if you were a peasant farmer in 14th century staffordshire you'd have got to know yourself every bloody day like you know you didn't need yeah. an extra challenge whereas i suppose modernity we're all we're, we're all sort of lounging about in gentlemen's clubs or now in offices and maybe we need to create things that teach us about ourselves i also think just generationally that that generation after the first world war had seen such horrific things and here was a chance to do something that was very very hard but had a felt like a purer goal you know you're not massacring another country's young men you're you know you're trying to reach the top of this mountain and the the language that they talked about it you know this, this is the sentinel in the sky this really was, it felt redemptive, I think, just particularly in the 20s and 30s. Fascinating stuff. We've got a, a question here from Mark, who's one of the History Hit subscribers listening to this call. Do you spend a lot of time trying to work out exactly where people were when this happened? Is there enjoyment here in kind of forensically putting together the details of, of, of what happened? Or is this a bigger book about mountaineering and about, and about human endurance? No, I felt, well, I felt that it was really important to get this story right I mean, I feel that about every story I do, but Wilson's been written about before, Morris Wilson's been written about before, and the more I dug into archives and found new original material, I realised that so much that had been written about him was wrong. You know, the common story about where he fought in the war, wrong. Like, there was no way he could have been where everyone said he was. His battalion was fighting somewhere else. You look in his unit diary, there he is. Okay, so that's all wrong. And in fact, it's much more dramatic when you know the true story like even up to the very last edit, I was finding things like I realised that his altimeter was broken because he he keeps on recording heights that are not where he is on the mountain, and so I find <laughs> you find yourself changing where he is on the mountain because of that. That all of that was really important. So the details instruct your wider sense of what it's all about. There were little moments, for instance. When he was in Darjeeling waiting to go in disguise to the mountain, he's walking around town with this old American woman who gives him a cross. And on one side of the cross, it says Rita. And on the other, it says Amor Vincit Omnia, Love Conquers All. And the cross had been given to a guy that had gone to France and died in the First World War. And this, Morris Wilson tells this woman his story. And the woman gives him this cross that had belonged to her daughter's fiance and he takes it and he wears it to Everest and I have never seen in any you know this in a letter that I found in a in a box in Germany someone gave it to me those details instruct your sense of what the whole story is about it's not a question of you know what the story is and then it's a question of filling in the details the details are the story that was meaningful to him for a particular set of reasons and it's what he's wearing when he dies and it's you know it's still on him now I think um, because his body is still in a high place. Yeah, it's it's still there, preserved, like so many other mountaineers on Everest. Well, thank you very much. It's such an exciting book, this. What's it called? It's called The Moth and the Mountain. Very exciting to have it in the world. Well, congratulations. Lots of hard work, I know. The Moth and the Mountain, Ed Caesar, congratulations. Good luck. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Dan. Hi everyone, thanks for reaching the end of this podcast. 
Most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms. But anyone who's awake, it would be great if you could do me a quick favour. Head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars and then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Now sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout. <laughs> 